everyone, and welcome back to Who's There. I'm your host, Allison. If you're new here, thank you for joining us. This is a podcast where I talk to a new horror fan every week because I hope to destigmatize what it means to be a horror movie fan because most of us are just regular people who like the adrenaline rush of being scared for some reason, and here we delve into those reasons. Thanks for sticking by while I, I took the month of August off, but we're back, and I'm so excited because this week we have an awesome episode with the editor-in-chief of Fangoria Magazine, Phil Nobile Jr. Phil and I met at Monster Mania Con in August, and I knew I had to have him on. We talked about how he wound up at Fangoria and his vision for the magazine, what horror means to him, and why he won't pick just a single favorite horror movie. He also sold me on why Texas Chainsaw Massacre 4 is worth a watch or rewatch, and how horror helps us figure out our boundaries. One last thing before we get into this episode, if you love the show and haven't left us a review on iTunes or Spotify yet, I'd be so grateful if you could take a second to rate and review on, app, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and subscribe to our feed wherever you listen to us. Thank you to everyone who's already left us a review. It's so appreciated as it really helps people to find us. I think I've rambled enough, so let's get into this episode with Phil Nobile Jr. <laughs> Hey, Phil, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for being here. So we met last weekend at Monster ManiaCon, which was a lot of fun. And I'm super excited to have you on now. Do you want to start by telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Oh, no. Sure. (laughs) I mean, I edit a horror magazine called Fangoria. It's been around for 43 years. It's the magazine I read when I was a kid that got me into horror. So to be able to shepherd it into a new space is very exciting for me and, and a weird, a very weird, surreal kind of chapter in my life. But uh, I've been writing about movies on online and other, otherwise for about 12 years now. And I've been the editor of the magazine since 2018. Nice. Awesome. Mm-hmm. So first things first, what's your favorite scary movie? I refuse to pick a favorite scary movie. I don't like pitting movies against each other. I don't like ranking them like like racehorses. I think each movie is its own thing. I have favorites. And, you know, depending on the day, my, my favorite, my go-to. And you and I talked about this at the convention a little bit. I said if you had to sort of find some kind of metric to sort of declare a favorite, to me, it's the ones that have like moved me to like pilgrimages where I, I go visit the locations or I want to go and, and experience like something connected to that movie. And there's, there's two, I think that sort of meet that criteria more than anything. And it's Romero's Dawn of the Dead is one and Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre is the other. Awesome. Yeah. You have a documentary coming out or that has just come out about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I'm in a documentary about Texas you're, Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, it's, it's not mine. Okay. Yeah, it's a filmmaker named Phil Escott, who's also has a documentary out called The Found Footage Phenomenon. Yes. But I have not, I'm looking forward to meeting Phil at Fantastic Fest in September. My interview was done over Zoom, so I've never actually met him. But he, yeah, he was, he put together a retrospective documentary that's coming out this year about the film. And I sort of just shared my personal you know feelings about it more or less i'm not i don't claim to be an expert about the film or anything like that but it is a movie that does sort of mean a lot to me and 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 means new things to me in each decade that i revisit it and i think as as a movie that's as confrontational about mortality as that film is i think it actually hits very different to a middle-aged person than it does to a young person how so well, well, because there's something very matter of fact about the the death in the in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. There's something 
and it's very famously starts out with the, the narration that says what happened to them is all the more tragic in that they were young. And as I've gotten older, I started to feel like maybe that's not really true. I think that <clears throat> as you get older and once you're, once you're past your forties, you know, death has a de- very different meaning for you than when you were watching this when you were 12 years old or when you were 20 years old, you know, death has come for a few people in your circle and you have, I think as Brandon Lee said, more, more sunrises behind you than in front of you. And so you, you ponder death, death differently when you're closer to it, I think. And there's something so real about the, the death in, in that film that feels abstract when you're younger, I think. Uh, and when you watch it now, it is, it is, it lost none of its power to me. And it's gotten actually more resonant in the way it's sort of, it presents a universe that does not care about you, a universe that will snuff you out without a second thought because you decided to turn down this road because you decided to pull over at this house because you went in that door. The, the idea, I mean, I, I mean, maybe getting a little too far along here, but the, the, the film, if you remember, they are in the car, they are in the van, to check out their grandfather's grave. And that's how, they, that's why they die. Now, why are they checking out their grandfather's grave? Because one of the people in that house was digging up the graves in that cemetery. They actually summoned them. They had no idea. They had no idea that they'd been summoned to that spot, that the universe conspired to put them there and make them go there, make them walk down that road, make them walk in that house and got them on that meat hook. But they, in a weird way, if you look at that film, that film is telling you that whatever you do, whatever you think control you have in your life, you are always going to end up on that meat hook. And that, if you sit and think about it, is really fucking dark. And, and it's really, really valid and really, really true. So that's sort of where that movie found me in my 40s, you know, even though it's probably the favorite that it is because it's, I think we all, when we're between the ages of like 11 and 13, whatever we see in that age, our brain is in a spot where that's just, those movies are going to become our canon. Those are our favorites, right? We, they hit us at that right age. And no matter what anybody tells us, those are going to be our favorites. And that's when I saw Texas Chainsaw during the VHS boom of the 80s. But I think in my adulthood, it's really come to mean something quite different to me. Oh, that, that's a really interesting take. I only watched Texas Chainsaw Massacre for the first time in 2020 during like the height of the pandemic. So that's really, right. That's it's interesting to hear people talk about it. And you, your and your tastes run more to the modern, I would say, right? Yes. Yeah. I so actually really, I really enjoyed the the twenty twenty two version of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which I know you're going to hang one. up the call. No. <laughs> but- no. <laughs> the, the other thing that I really love about the franchise now, divorcing it from the actual film, is that we are nine movies in at this point. Yeah. And there's no, there's nothing sacred about it because the first, the first sequel was the original director goofing on the first movie in a lot of ways. So in a way that takes the heat off of anybody from trying to make a good Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie, they, they've been all different things. The fourth one is Berserk and it's written by, it's directed by the guy who wrote the original and it's sort of his grouchy old man take on the on the young kids it's an angrier movie than the first one because this one hates the kids that we had the glossy platinum dunes remake we had 3d we've had prequels there's a there's a leatherface there's a prequel called leatherface that's made by french filmmakers filmed in eastern europe starring british people and if if you if, if nothing tells you that this is a not a sacrosanct sacrosanct franchise it's that that, that it got so divorced from its own 
origins that that movie played in theaters. And I drove two hours to see it because I had to. Yeah. Uh, I was so sad that this new one went to Netflix because I'd seen since 86, I'd seen them all in the theater. Oh, wow. That's yeah. a, that's a lot of Texas Chainsaw Massacres to see in the theater. It's a lot of massacring with chainsaws in Texas. Yes. And this one um, actually had like a really good massacre that would have been good to see in theaters. I did tell people, you know, that, that the new one, you know, if you, you, you can hate on the new one if you want, but it, it's maybe the first one to have an actual massacre. That, yeah, that's true. I ha- I've only seen a couple of the sequels and the 2003 remake. So mm-hmm. have you heard that people call this like the, like a vegetarian or a ve- like pro-vegan movie? Because I think Toby Hooper went vegan after, after making this. I don't know. It, I might have heard that. That might be apocryphal. I'm not sure if that's really the case, but it certainly makes a case for veganism, doesn't it? Like when, when they're driving down that road and Franklin is sort of gleefully recounting how the cows get slaughtered and it cuts to these what looks like suffering cattle, like they're they're yeah. frothing at the mouth and it looks like they're sitting there in the heat. It certainly doesn't feel like a pro meat movie. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you first fall in love with the horror genre? Gosh, so when I was when I was 11 or 12, we had a family that would take us to anything. Like my dad would just take us all in the station wagon and go to the drive-in and whatever was playing is what we were going to see. There was no curation. There was no mindful parenting going on there. The first movie I remember seeing is The Exorcist at the drive-in. And I looked at when The Exorcist, the Exorcist came out in Christmas of 73, so I wouldn't have been at the drive-in. But back then before home video, movies played for a year in different regions. So I'm assuming I saw it in the summer of 74. And it's the first thing I remember seeing. It's, cr- you know, it's crazy. <laughs> I'm sure that didn't make me fall in love with the horror genre, but we would go see anything and everything. And I think, and I was terrified. I had to be on my 11th birthday. My brother took me to see American werewolf in London. And I had to leave halfway through because I was in tears. I made it all the way to, I don't know if you've seen the film, but I made it all the way to, you know, Jack with his flappy skin in the hospital talking to him. And I was like, I'm out. So Horror movies terrified me. And I think that one Christmas, my a different brother gave me a book about special effects makeup. And suddenly I was like, oh, this is, this is craft. This is artwork. This is people creating these things, filming them and editing them in such a way to make me feel a certain thing. And that really flipped a switch in my brain. And then I think Fangoria was a big part of that too. Just <clears throat> reading about the people that made it and Fangoria presented these makeup artists who often had long hair and beards and stuff like rock stars. And it was like, it was like a cool scene, you know? And uh, getting my head around that and learning about the fact that it was craft, I think is, is what made me fall in love with it in a way beyond the way I was just sort of, you know, daring myself to experience before that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like when you're a kid and you're watching horror, you're, you're testing your limits, you're seeing how much you can take. And I was constantly tripping over that line on myself. But learning how they made the films and learning about the people who made them made me sort of worship it in a different way. And that stuck. I was always fascinated by filmmaking. I wanted to make films. I wanted to work on films. And then once I got a taste of that, I realized I didn't want to do that and that I wanted to write about films. And so I've been writing about movies for years and years and years. And horror was just my, about filmmaking in general too. I like, I like all different kinds of films, but horror was the thing that taught me about the craft of filmmaking. So that was my gateway drug. That's very cool. I always went to go see horror movies in the theater growing up. But it was only when I started to listen to horror podcasts back in about 2017, where 
I listened to like the in-depth analysis and more of the meaning behind the movies that I really started to truly appreciate them. But like, I have all my ticket stubs from the late nineties, early two thousands. And it's like, I went to go see what lies beneath several times and the ring several times. And yeah. You said so. the ring was a favorite of yours, right? Yes. Yeah. It's my, I, yeah, it's my all time favorite followed by scream and then Cloverfield. So none of them are alike, but. Mm, how did you like yeah. the new scream? Oh, I really liked it. it. It felt very dark, which reminded me of the first one a lot. So, yeah. Yeah. Did you like it? I did. I'm, I'm not a screen super fan. So it's like, I'm not the, the target audience, I would say, but I found it. Whereas in the nineties, they were always talking about how scream was a horror comedy and, and, and sort of, you know, leaning on the funniness of it. To me, this one was really funny. And, and, and delivered on that horror comedy idea in a way that I think the original Screams kind of grazed. No, no disrespect to Scream. I, th- I understand its importance in the canon and all that. And I actually, have, I'm a, as far as the Scream sequels go, I have a running argument with everyone online that I actually like really like Scream 4 because I feel like that's the only one that, that Craven had a, the opportunity for the thing to ripen into true sequel material where the other ones were just back to back and they were just sort of hurrying to get them out you know, as far yeah. as, as I'm aware, four felt like that, that distance of time made it feel more like a sequel to me. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I saw Wes Craven do a talk at the New York times in the October before scream four came out. So that was fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you were talking about things that every horror movie scared you growing up when you were young. So what scares you now? Hmm. What scares me now, you know, there's a very boring political answer about what scares me now, but I think that we are, it's, it scares me how much we're willing to put up with every day in terms of our current scene. It scares me how quickly we've gotten used to all of it. I think, you know, like 2019, you look at 2019 and, and the idea that, that we're three years into a pandemic and, and just sort of kind of poorly rolling with it. That's, kind of scary and and just how i don't know but i think we were able to sort of compartmentalize enough how many people have died and whatnot it's just unfathomable until it's not it's unfathomable and then five minutes later we're moving on it's that's that scares me the way we kind of numb have numbed ourselves to a lot of what's happening that's kind of terrifying movie wise if you if you're asking about movies i'm not currently very scared by a lot of movies it's more about i'm i'm dialed in on the craft and the presentation and whatnot i will say that funny games scared the crap out of me but that's now almost that's 20 years ago at this point right have you seen that one i bought the the american remake on dvd from housing works and i watched it maybe like a month or two ago with my partner Mm -hmm. and i was like yeah this is rough he's like are you sure you want to keep going because this is not a fun movie i was like yeah Mm. why not (laughs) no it's that movie put a knot in my stomach I, it was rough. Yeah. I hated it. Yeah. The American remake was filmed in a town not far from where I grew up. So okay. that, that was weird. That was weird mm-hmm. to see. Like, I was like, oh, I know that town. Yeah. I mean, what about you? Are you, are you, when you watch something, is it to, is it to be scared? Is it to be like unnerved or what are you getting out of the genre? Yeah. I think I like to be scared because I am, I'm a scaredy cat. I'm easily scared. I will sometimes watch movies with like my hands over my eyes. I'm getting a little bit desensitized to gore, but it's not my favorite thing still. Yeah. And I like the mystery part of like a whodunit and all that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Got it. 
I mean, I, I love to be surprised at this point. I think we yeah. talked briefly about Titan and about yes. how you just didn't know what was going to happen next. And that was like, that was, that elated me. That was just so yeah. fun to see <laughs> in terms of like, cause you don't, you don't often get a film where you don't know where it's going. And oh yeah. so when it's that, and I, I mean like in an earned way, not just chaos and nonsense thrown at the screen. It was like, there was a plan but we weren't privy to it. And, and it was as watching it unfold was just like a privilege, honestly, that stuff is cool. I love that. So more than being scared, I like to be surprised and I like to be challenged and caught off guard by films, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> so why do you think that people who seem perfectly sane love the horror genre? Hmm. I've never... Well, I've never subscribed to the idea that that horror is not for sane people or horror is not for people who who are broken or disturbed in some way. You know, when I've, again, going back to reading Fangoria as a kid, one of the first issues I had, it was Martin Scorsese writing an article about how brilliant David Cronenberg is. And how normal David Cronenberg is, you know, and if you look at all of those guys, if you look at George Romero, like that guy could be working at a steel mill, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Cronenberg could be a psychiatrist in an office somewhere. They, I think it's only this, I don't, I'm going to get in trouble, but I don't. Let me, I let me it, rephrase it in a different way. So, and I'm <laughs> sure you've gotten this a lot and I've gotten this a lot. People, when they find out I like horror, they're like, really? But you seem so sane. So, yeah, but to me, that's a, that's such a prejudiced and uh, I don't want to abuse the word bigoted, but that, that's a, that's a derogatory point of view from someone who's not watching horror movies. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, there, there are, and every year we sort of have this complaint or debate or argument about the legitimacy of horror and horror fans get mad that the horror films aren't nominated for Oscars and things like that. And I kind of don't need outside institutions to legitimize my entertainment. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, and I don't need, I don't know, for me, how do I put it? Ever since I was a kid, me and horror was a religion of one. Like it wasn't a club. It wasn't a group. It wasn't a cult. It was me in that movie. Do you know what I mean? And that's always been enough for me. It's cool to see horror get accepted. It's cool to see people like Jordan Peele, take it to a, a more mainstream place and, 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 and a bigger awareness level and, and to sort of push the envelope of, of what it is because the other horrible thing about horror is that everybody that's into horror has a very definite idea about what is and isn't horror. And they're real excited to tell you, especially when you are enjoying something that they're not. And, and I've gotten into arguments and trouble about this online too, but the idea of a community to me seems a little presumptuous because there's all kinds of different people. And I think you saw it this weekend when you were at that convention, there's all different kinds of people that are into horror and it's not a monolith. It's not one crowd. And so it's, it's, I guess, easy to say there's horror fans and non-horror fans, but there's non-horror fans. And then there's so many different kinds of horror fans and who are often at odds with each other. So it kind of just bounces off me when somebody who doesn't really ingest horror at all, says they don't get it because there's enough people within the bubble who don't get what other horror fans are into 
And I get that all the time with the magazine. I get people telling me, you know, you'd be surprised how many people telling me what I'm doing wrong with the magazine in terms of covering this as opposed to covering that. Why is this on the cover? Why is that on the cover? People are rigid in their definitions of, of what's acceptable. And it's tempting to say that that's a, just about non-horror fans, but I think it's just as true within fandom. Does that make sense? Yes. <laughs> Good answer. So what is your favorite subgenre in horror? Hmm. I don't know that I have one because I, I again, I think I, I like the things that I haven't seen. I'm excited about new stuff more than I am about like retreating into something familiar. Do you know what I mean? So I, my favorite subgenre is the one that comes out of nowhere and I have never heard of it before. You know, it's, it's the next one. Like cozy, cozy favorites, love a good slasher. They're just something about even the film stock that, that the golden age of slashers was filmed on is comforting and pleasing to me. That aesthetic is, is fun. The, the scores that are often used kind of are cut from the same cloth and that's always a fun thing. But it's, I think it depends on my mood. There's a, there's times where I just want to watch 1930s universal monster movies sometimes, you know, cause I grew up watching those on channel 13 as a kid and, and uh, they're burned into my DNA just as hard as, as the slasher stuff. I have blind spots that I should probably work on in terms of foreign horror. Mm. You know, I don't know it. I don't know a ton about, you know, Kaiju or J horror. I've liked what I've seen and I always try to make room for it when I'm at a film festival and it's like, if it's a complete blind spot for me, it's great to just go in cold and, and experience that in case it's some kind of jam. But, you know, as far as what's familiar to me and, and, and that I turn to more and more often, it's, it's the stuff that I grew up with generally. You know? Yeah, that makes sense. Do you have any favorite horror directors? Yeah, it's, it's, it's the boring answer, but it's, it's Cronenberg and it's Romero and it's Carpenter. Like those, those were my, I mean, Part of it is I remember being excited for their next ones because I grew up watching this. So like the day the fly opened, I was like, got to see the fly. Super excited for the fly. When Day of the Dead opened, I wasn't old enough to go see it in theaters. And my dad took me to a midnight screening because it was unrated. So you couldn't go see it unless you had somebody over 18 with you. And my dad took me to the midnight screening and sat there with me and watched it because he knew I'd been waiting months for it. So those guys, because I associate them with very specific memories and a very specific kind of excitement. And it was, yeah. it was them in their golden age, you know, like going to see like just, it was Friday and you could go see a new Cronenberg or a new Carpenter. That was, you know, yeah. we pine for that now. I don't know. Who, I don't know. I don't know that there's an analog for those guys at this point. There's everybody sort of clamoring for the throne, but you know, <laughs> give or take a Jordan Peele or an Ari Oster. I, I think that everyone else is just sort of like uh, working stiffs. <laughs> you know what I mean? Maybe. I think the names in horror right now are like cranking out a, a movie a year or so, and they're doing okay. a lot of television and it's great, you know, it's because the, the, the content is there and the, and the need for their work is there, but it's not quite the same as when you're watching like one of the masters, like build their canon. Do you, yeah. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's partially that like, it's easy for me to say that now about them. And like, it's going to take 10 years to see, yeah. Who the, who the geniuses were of this era. You know what I mean? You need a little hindsight yeah. probably. Yeah, definitely. But speaking of Ari Aster, do you like his movies? I liked them. I hereditary really rattled me in a way that I wasn't quite sure like why. And it wasn't like a linear, Oh, that scared me. I'm scared now. Like, but I didn't sleep right for 
three days after watching Hereditary. And I can't, and it wasn't like I dreamed about Hereditary, but there was a very cause and effect, like put me in a weird headspace yeah. that really worked. When I watched it at home, I noticed he was doing very weird things with tones on the soundtrack that I didn't notice in the theater. Mm-hmm. That I think maybe because my sound, my sound system at home is maybe a little shitty that it wasn't calibrated right. And it was revealing things that maybe were supposed to be a little more subliminal. But oh. there was like a that happened for about 20 minutes in the movie. And I'm rewinding and I'm like, is this on the track? Is something wrong with my speaker? But it was like there. And I swear oh. I didn't feel it in the theater or notice it in the theater, but it was there and it was doing something. Now that said, I've only watched Hereditary twice and I've only watched Midsummer once. I'm, I'm in no hurry to revisit them. Uh, and that's, that's a compliment. I mean, that's a compliment yeah. because, it, you know, the movies were effective. They weren't necessarily a good time. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and I don't want to brand myself with them the way that I might have like a Dawn of the Dead t-shirt somewhere. Like there's people with like enamel pins of the sister who killed herself in Midsummer. I'm like, oh, no, yeah. no. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to immerse myself that way, but he's very effective at what he does. And, and those films are unquestionably top level examples of contemporary horror, in my opinion. But, and, you know, I curated a panel that I played at a convention last month where it was a bunch of different horror writers. It was the writer from Freaky and Kevin Williamson and Brian Fuller. And it was about the idea of this era of horror that is so punishing and so about trauma and so about like, I don't know, we, we hit a spot where horror fans were like, oh, I see myself in the final girl and, and I'm, I feel seen and this trauma and this PTSD is, speaks to me. And I think somewhere along the lines that stopped being subtext and started being text. And this mm-hmm. panel was about like, well, what's next? What, when are we going to get out yeah. of this loop of like wallowing in our, our bad feelings? And when are we going to make horror fun again? Because horror kind of should be fun. I think it's, I love confrontational horror and I love the horror that rattles you as, as we talked about Texas Chainsaw, but horror also should be a ride sometimes. And, yeah. and it should be a roller coaster that you want to get back on again. And I don't want to get back on Ari Oster's roller coaster. <laughs> Wait, so um, what did they say? When are, when is horror going to get fun again? Well, here's the thing. I curated that panel. It was in LA and then I got COVID and I couldn't go to it. So I don't know what they said. But hopefully oh. they had some answers and maybe somebody filmed it. I don't know. I'd love to see, I'd love to actually see that panel for myself. But, you know, I think that if you watch Freaky, which which was written by Michael Kennedy, it, it, yeah. it does kind of have some pathos to it. And there is some interesting things happening there with like the current conversation about gender and sexuality, but in an offhand kind of way that doesn't ever get sort of bogged down in identity politics or anything like that. Like Kennedy still makes it very fun. And Chris Landon, the director also. Brian Fuller did some really incredible things with, with turning Hannibal into something else entirely that was in the, in the novel, but co- still coloring in those lines and having something to say about, again, something like important topics like gender and, and love between two men at the, at the end of the day in, in Hannibal. But Hannibal was a blast too. I think that that's just sort of something we have to be careful that we don't lose sight of because otherwise it's just this grief porn that we're kind of, you know, uh, re-traumatizing ourselves with (laughs) in order to feel something, which, you know, no, no shade on how anybody needs to get through their, their stuff. But I think that we have to also think about what's next. Yeah, definitely. I, yeah. Some horror nowadays can get pretty, pretty dark 
So I definitely appreciate a fun horror movie every now Mm -hmm. and again, which is why I really liked from several years ago, Happy Death Day. Yes. Same director as Freaky, as a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. So Chris Landon. Yeah, I think he's going to be at the forefront of this stuff. And and he, being who he is, is a, a gay man. He's he's not going to not include these sort of interesting themes and subtext, but he also knows that it's a party, which is cool. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of Cronenberg, going back to that, do, have you seen, I'm assuming you've seen Crimes of the Future already? I did. I've seen Crimes of the Future. I wrote about it in the new issue of Fango. It's, it's a fascinating little movie. It's, it's a movie that I wasn't expecting because his last film was 2014. And I think we'd all sort of assumed that he was retired because he started writing novels after that. And I was like, oh, I guess he's done making movies. And that 2014 film Maps to the Stars kind of didn't feel very much like a Cronenberg movie. And we were like, and that happens with these older directors sometimes, you know, that like Carpenter's last film, The Ward, kind of didn't really have a lot of his signature on it. It happens, you know, and I think that you can't expect a filmmaker to deliver at this same consistent level of quality throughout their career, especially once, I believe Cronenberg is almost 80 now. Maybe 79 or 75. Uh, so Crimes was a very pleasant surprise in that regard because it felt very much of a piece with his his body of work without feeling like he was running in place or without feeling like a retread, even though ironically it has the same title as a film he made in 1970. Yeah. Which is something that caused me to think, oh, he's bookending. This is his last film. He's not going to make a movie after this. Mm. And then the day before I went to see it, they announced that he's making another movie <laughs> with Vincent Cassell. So you know, he's not done top telling us stuff, which is amazing. And I liked Crimes a lot. I think it's one of his funnier movies, even though it's one of his darkest movies. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it yet. It's finally on demand because I missed it in theaters. So yeah, give it a watch. I don't want to tell you too much about it, but I think it's, it's a movie that is filled with intentional echoes of his previous work, but it's still kind of its own thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I'll have to. I'll have to check it out soon. Yeah, it's on. It's on my list. It's always looking at me from my my calendar. My There's list. too many movies now. There's too much right? to see. I have a Every- list of like 130 movies that I need to watch. They're not all horror, but the majority are horror. So yeah, you look at a list once in a while. I look at my wall where like there's there's movies that I've purchased, and I'm like, I'm never going to watch all these. Like <laughs> I can tr- I can start right now, and I'm still not going to get through all of them. It's a sobering thought. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so like we were talking about before you're the editor-in-chief of Fangoria magazine how did you first fall into that role well I was writing on the internet for years and years at a site <laughs> called birth movies death and I was I have to confess I was not quite paying attention to what was going on with Fangoria but my understanding is the it had kind of rolled to a stop somewhat it it was having trouble publishing it was publishing digital issues and not publishing the print issues. And then it kind of rolled to a stop in 2016. And then it was purchased in 2018. And I was offered the job of editing it. And uh, I had to, I sort of pitched a take of like what I thought Fangoria should be in 2022 in terms of how do I make me who read it when I was a kid, how do I, how do I recreate that excitement in, in 2018 Phil that, you know, the eighties Phil had for Fango. And, and it was, And my idea was that it would be a quarterly to sort of recreate the anticipation and the event, sort of the event of getting a new issue. So it would come out four times a year. It would be a hundred pages per issue. Uh, So you're getting your money's worth page for page. It's the same price as Rue or Horror Hound or those other magazines. It's just that it's a hundred pages. So the sticker price is a little higher. 
And then I sort of exploited the affection that so many people had for the brand that are now filmmakers. So when you go to a filmmaker like, say, Jordan Peele and say, hey, we want you to have to have the cover of the magazine for your new film, who should interview you? Peel, like me, read up, grew up, grew up reading the magazine, and you know, probably a bucket list thing for him is to be on the cover of Fangoria, right? So he he shows up, and he's got Paul Thomas Anderson interviewing him about his new movie, and which is you know a, a thing that I can offer new readers that kind of didn't happen. But again, it also harkens back to the, that article that I mentioned in the '80s, where they had Scorsese and Fangoria writing about Cronenberg. That, that's actually the issue that I sent to Jordan Peele. I was like, what can we do that's like this? And he came back with Paul Thomas Anderson. And I was like, yes, let's do that. And then that became an idea where maybe filmmakers could interview each other. And that was a thing we sort of threaded throughout the first year or so of the magazine. Like after, after Peele got interviewed by Paul Thomas Anderson, I had Peele interview Ari Oster. And then I had Ari Oster interview Robert Eggers. And then we sort of like passed that baton a little bit at a time. And I did it also with Natalie Erica James, who made Relic. Have you seen that film? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Love dark. Relic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, she interviewed Nia DaCosta about Candyman. So we kind of just sort of used our, our, our brand identity because all these people read it when they were a kid. Right. And I used that to sort of reel in some bigger names to sort of write about things that, that weren't happening in other spots. Like for uh, Patton Oswalt, we had uh, in the eighties, the magazine had a contest where you could write a comic strip or a story showing all the slashers fighting each other. And apparently Patton Oswalt drew a comic when he was 13 or 14, sent it into Fangoria and didn't get in. And then so cut to the pandemic and Patton Oswalt is sitting at home and he sends me the comic. So we ran the comic in the magazine, you know, 37 years after he had (laughs) sent it in and had him sort of write a little intro to it. And then did a cover where it's like him refereeing a big monster fight. So stuff like that, where we can wave in like people who grew up reading the magazine and who have now attained some measure of success themselves to get bylines that you wouldn't see anywhere else. That's always kind of fun for me. Oh, that's such a neat idea. That's such a cool thing that you've done. I told you I recently subscribed a couple months ago. So I have the first issue, the last one that came out. It's on my coffee table right now. So thank you for subscribing. Yeah, of course. What has been your favorite pieces that you've written so far or that you've hmm. run? <laughs> hmm. Written, I've written so little in the four years since I've done this magazine because it, it's, it's a manager job, honestly. It's about, here's the writer for this and I'm going to send this person on this set visit and I'm going to like curate this and find this. And weirdly, I've done less writing since taking over this magazine than I've done in the past 12 years. And you're putting me on the spot trying to think of what I've written that's any good at all. Um, <laughs> you, wrote, you wrote the email, the e-blast that I got today. So, yes, I write the, so that's the <laughs> other thing. It's, and then the, my bosses made me do this weekly newsletter. So I have to write every week now. So I am writing more. And that's an interesting exercise because whether I have anything to say or not, something has to get emailed to you on Friday morning. <laughs> so there's like a little editorial in the newsletter and that gets me in hot water about 30% of the time, because again, I'm just writing in a panic, trying to get it out there. And I'm not, <laughs> not really vetting what I'm writing. It's, and it's more of an opinion piece and that's mm-hmm. kind of fun, but it's also stressful. The last issue, the one you have, I had to write, I think, five or six articles. And that's the most I've ever written in a single issue because I'm usually outsourcing the stuff. But so many things sort of happened last minute on that issue that I ended up having to write it myself. And uh, gosh, I can't think of a favorite across the four years, but 
we had the idea, you know, on the, on the newsstand cover of the new issue, we made it look like an Us Weekly or a Star Magazine because we leaned into the sort of the, the tabloid tragedy story that's yes. a flashback of Nope. And we went really 90s tabloid with it. And I sent that off to Jordan Peele and he, and then in the corner, there's a little thing on the corner that we just made up. It says Jordan Peele breaks his silence because we were trying to be you know, like a gossip <laughs> rag. And he calls up and says, I want you to interview me as if the, as if the Gordy story is real and we run it like a tabloid story. So when I had 24 hours notice that I had to do improv with Jordan Peele on the phone, I'm not an improv artist. And so we had to like do this whole thing where I, we pretended it was real and I interviewed him about it and I wrote that story. That was a fun, sweaty moment on the last issue. <laughs> I don't know if it was like my favorite favorite, but it was, it was a moment. Yeah. yeah. That's very cool. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me anything about the upcoming issue without getting yourself in trouble? So the new Halloween is, of course, the big story. Mm-hmm. And uh, for that one, we did the thing I talked about where I had the idea was it was going to be Jamie Lee Curtis talking to the first guy to play the shape in 1978 mm-hmm. and the last guy to play the shape in 2022. Oh, nice. So it's this three-way <laughs> conversation about her and her two shapes, which is... You know, I will say this. I sprung that on her on like on the Zoom call, I think because they were in the middle of a junket. And I was like, here's the idea. And she went, "Okay." And then just Barbara Walters it for an hour. She just took it over and was like running the whole interview and ran with it. That lady understands the assignment. And I'm very thankful for that. Very, very cool. Very weirdly deep piece about her playing this role and these guys and there are two different approaches because you've got one guy who played it for three weeks as a goof because his film school buddy was making a horror movie. Yeah. And then you've got this other guy who's played the role for five years and has this <laughs> very philosophical take on it. So it's a very different vibe. But what I love is that, that that guy who did it as a goof in 78 and this guy who's been playing it for five years and is all Zen and, and, and spiritual about it. They're like best buddies now. They oh. go on the convention circuit together. They hang out together. Yeah. It's oh. really, really cool. And a very, I don't know. I love that kind of stuff because anybody can do the junket stuff. And uh, does Lori fight Michael Myers? And what was this like? But like to have that conversation about what this, how it's changed their lives. Interestingly, I really love that. I've also got a bunch of stuff coming up on the new Hellraiser. Oh, cool. Which, which is, has been keeping a pretty low profile, but I think once it comes out, it's going to take people by surprise. Yeah. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. It's with the female Hellraiser. Yep. Yeah. I'm excited. I'm excited to see that take on it. So. Yeah. And we've got, we've got a piece about, about the effects of it. We've got an interview with her and we've got a a piece on the filmmakers as well. Oh, that's awesome. Is that coming Mm -hmm. straight to streaming or is it going into theaters? My understanding is it's going straight to Hulu. Oh, okay, cool. Awesome. I can watch it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you have any ideas about any issues for 2023 yet based on what's on the docket to be released? 2023. Well, we have to do the new Scream, right? I don't yes. know when. I think that's coming out in the springtime. I think, I think March. Yeah. That'll be a big one. And then earlier this year, I went to New Orleans to do a set visit for Renfield, which is the movie. That. So it's, it's a movie about Dracula's manservant, Renfield, mm-hmm. trying to get some independent agency and break free of from his toxic work relationship with Count Dracula. And uh, <laughs> it's, do you know, Nicholas Holt, 
mm-hmm. who is in, he's been in a lot of things. He's been yeah. in the favorite and he was in, he was in one of the X-Men movies. He's a, he's a great actor. He was a child actor who's become this like really great leading man type. He plays Renfield and Nicolas Cage plays Dracula. Mm-hmm. And, and they've relocated to New Orleans for the plot of this film. And it's really, it's, it looks like an Aquafina's in it. It's going to be a lot of fun, <laughs> I think. Oh, yeah, that does sound fun. Nicholas Holt, um, was he the lead in Warm Bodies? That's right. Yeah, I love that mm-hmm. movie. That movie is so cute. Mm-hmm. So an article came out in 2020 that said that horror movie fans were handling lockdown better than non-horror movie fans. Why mm. do you think that was the case? I think that's a, a headline that someone came up with and then wrote an article to justify it. But who knows? <laughs> <clears throat> I think that, I mean, I definitely did some doomsday prep at the beginning of lockdown. <laughs> I stocked up on some some dry goods and some non-perishables and uh, filled the basement with it. But uh, no, uh, do you think that that's the case? Do you think you handled lockdown better than your non-horror friends? Yeah, I mean, I was happy to stay home and watch movies and, you know, when I wasn't working and I, you know, were, were I had somebody come on here once and they're like, well, as horror fans, we're rules followers. So after we learned the rules of the pandemic, you know, wear a mask six feet and stay home, we were good. We knew what to, we knew what to do. So, I mean, I liked it because I just had the chance to watch a lot of horror movies that I had never had the time to watch before. So, and I had watched a ton of this stuff. So I was like, I know how bad it can get. And this isn't that bad yet. Right. That's a good point. And I, I do think there's something to the fact that we have been exposed to the idea of extreme scenarios and that how you have to adjust your behavior to sort of accommodate other scenarios and that we were probably rolled with it more than some of the other tantrum throwers did out there, I would say. <laughs> yeah. That's fair. Yeah. Does your spouse like horror movies? No, she's a, she's a horror fan in law. She, she, she has come a long way. I would say she's, open to them and she's cool with them and they're not her go-to at all no and okay. that's okay that's fine i think i think that i just as the, there's there's maybe friction to not being into the same things i think there's a danger to like partnering with somebody who's into too much of the same yeah. things mm-hmm. and i think that there's it's probably healthy that each person's bringing something different to that particular table and you find middle ground and you and you get into things you know she's She's come to conventions before and she's got her favorites and she's definitely not against horror. It's just not, it's not her scene, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but watching her watch horror has made me sort of enjoy things in a different point of view than I would otherwise. My, my Instagram is private, but I think you're on it. There's like some saved stories where I'm just recording audio of her reacting to all the kills <laughs> on Friday the 13th. And it's Friday 13th. It's the eighties. And we're, you know, like it's, it's pretty, I'm pretty jaded against that stuff, but listening to her shriek and holler (laughs) over every kill in Friday 13th part five, you know, that makes me sort of like that re-energizes my uh, entertainment value for that movie. I would say. Yeah. You know what I mean? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's maybe similar to when people say they love watching movies again with their kids because they get to watch them react to it. So that's probably pretty close. And, and we're not childbearing people. We're not, we're not having any kids. So yeah. that's, that's, that's fun enough. And I've got 22 nieces and nephews at this point. Oh my and goodness. So, 
all on a different scale. Like some of them are older than you. And it's like, each one has a horror face and sort of like uncle Phil shows up with the horror stuff until they phase out of it, you know? So there's always somebody to indoctrinate, you know? Oh, you're the cool uncle. Yeah. You got all the horror junk. Nice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, are there any horror movies that you won't watch or that you won't watch ever again? Yeah. I just said this on Twitter that there's a movie that's coming out, coming to shutter. It's called speak no evil. Okay. I've seen and, the poster uh, for that. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and I was, I was advocating for it as best I can, but at the same time saying, I'll never watch it again. <laughs> it's, it is, it is rough going. It's, it's on that funny games tip of just, mm. you know, bleak and dark and, and no offering, you no relief. Right. Mm. Okay. It just gets darker and darker. And, and it's, I said on Twitter, like I watched it uh, like uh, virtually on at Sundance, maybe a year or so ago or almost a year ago and said, it's uh, at this point, it, the movie comes back to me in bits, like a recovered memory, <laughs> you know, somebody will post a still and I'm like, Oh God. Yeah. That, Oh, and it comes back to you in a flood. As far as like something that I would refuse to watch, I have no interest in watching real violence. If, if, cause sometimes I think there's people that want to like cross those streams and, and put stuff in horror films I mean, I've seen Cannibal Holocaust, but if you showed up with a movie today and said, and we killed three dogs in it for real, I would be like, no, I don't want to yeah. watch that. There's that boundary testing stuff. I think that if, if I haven't processed that and figured out where my boundaries are by now, then I should stop watching these things. I think I know where my stuff is, but like a 12 year old or a 14 year old, this is, that's their space to like, how, how extreme can I watch it? How hard can they go? And there's, and there's bloggers and, and, and writers that sort of live in that extreme horror space. And because they are still sort of figuring out their boundaries, which is fine. But did I watch all the human centipede movies? Sure. Like it's, (laughs) there's no, there's no, if it's not real violence, then I'm not going to like turn my nose up at it or, or say I can't watch it. But if there's, if it's try hard nonsense, that's trying to like provoke and, and doing it with like real violence. That's not for me. Yeah. That's understandable. I have a friend who really likes watching all of the extreme horror that he can find. He was really excited when he found a Serbian film on Fandango to rent. Yeah, I was like, you have fun with that. But he actually has texted me while we've been chatting and he was like, Oh, I finally found irreversible. I'm watching it now. I'm like, cause I heard that that was just, traumatizing so i was like hey you can watch this if you get bored so that's happening now nice i mean yeah i understand why people go to them and i don't judge people for going to them but it's not something i seek out because it's not it's not it's not why i come to horror primarily yeah like i said i'm more interested in craft and stuff and some of that french extreme horror i think is actually masterful like i thought inside was like a masterpiece but i think that there's something else happening there other than just trying to you know punish you or to, or to make you find your limits you yeah. know what i mean mm-hmm. yeah no martyrs is a really beautiful film but i never want to watch mm-hmm. it again yeah so exactly <laughs> so aside from any screenings that you've ever been to have you ever had any noteworthy experiences seeing a horror movie in theaters what would qualify fun audience something happens i don't know hmm I always think back to when I saw Hereditary in theaters and the moment where everyone, where she comes into focus in the corner of the room and everyone sort of lost their shit. <laughs> so, or yeah. Blair Witch. A lot of people say Blair Witch. So. Right. 
is the fact that I can't think of a single one. Does that mean that there's been too many? I'm not sure. Maybe. Um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Gosh, I'm not sure. So you know what one comes to mind is I, I watched when I was, again, too young. I was in theaters watching Friday the 13th Part 3 in 3D on opening night. <laughs> and it was my brother's, my brother lived in Maryland at the time. He was in the Navy. And it was basically an all black theater. And I grew up in the New Jersey suburbs and maybe knew two black people in my life at that point. So I watching, watching that movie with an all black theater was a completely different experience for me because the level of engagement and excitement and, and vocal enthusiasm was not something I had ever experienced in my life. Yeah. And it was, it was a riot. It was, it was a really good time. And I didn't, know that you could do that. I didn't know you could have, <laughs> I didn't know you could have that kind of fun in a movie theater, but it was a thoroughly interactive experience. And, and I, you know, again, I was this timid little kid at the time and I was like, wow, it was, it was remarkable. And it was a lot of fun to see it that way. And uh, when you can find the right movie to watch with the right kind of audience like that, it's always a good time. I think weirdly, even though it like it opened and closed in two weeks, Grindhouse in 2007, like I saw that with a perfect audience in Philadelphia. They just were on board and got it and drunk and just having a, you know, a, a great time that added to that experience for sure. I would say. That's cool. Yeah. I don't awesome. think I had a hereditary crowd. Sadly, it was like an almost empty 11 a.m. screening mm-hmm. and uh, God, I haven't been in a crowded movie theater in almost three years at this point. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's kind of relating to your story is in 20. 20- 16, I guess it was my then boyfriend and I went to go see get out, not really having any idea what it was about. We went to the AMC in Harlem and just to see it with a bunch of people who like saw it from the other perspective was very, yeah, they're engaged that movie, especially they're engaging with it on a level that like yeah. you couldn't possibly. And, and so there's value to that. And, you know, now you say that it makes me remember like, honestly, just like you said, a screening experience, but like literally just an all time life experience you know, one of the proudest things I've done is that I was an executive producer on Horror Noir, which is a documentary about oh, the history yeah. of, of Black filmmakers, Black horror, basically, in America. And we premiered it at the Egyptian in Los Angeles, and it was sold out, and it was a packed crowd, and they were running, basically running Black horror trailers in front of it. And I, oh. I, was, I was doing things outside. I was talking to people, and so I missed most of this, but I walked in to a packed theater where the house lights are still up, and they're playing trailers to, like, Blackula or, or Candyman and people were just cheering and screaming and freaking out about it. And then I sat down and I have, God, I'm trying to remember this. Had Tony Todd behind me. <laughs> I had Rachel True next to me and I was surrounded by people that were in the film. Mm-hmm. And again, it was a full theater though. So not everybody, of course not everybody in the theater and it's a big, big theater. And watching that film play to that audience is maybe the most fun I've ever had in a movie theater. And like, I could almost cry just thinking about it right now, just because it was such a, like a, like it was a year and a half of getting that film made and to watch it play to the people who had been waiting for that movie for maybe their lives, their whole lives, you know, it was, it was just so, so gratifying to see it clicking and landing with them. It was just amazing. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. Horror Noir was a great documentary. So really enjoyed that. What has been your favorite horror movie that you've seen so far in 2022? I would have to say I have a couple. X was a lot of fun. Yeah, X was just legit. And I went in it 
I hope he's not listening to this, but like not a giant Ty West fan. Although I did like his, his found footage cult movie, The Sacrament. I like that one a lot. I want to watch that. I haven't seen it. But I wasn't like a giant Ty West fan, but like this was so legit and so on point and, and, and about something like that it had this theme about ageism and about her motivation. It knocked me out and, and I've watched it three times since I think. It just really went to places I didn't think it would go. And I thought it was just a lot of fun. And I'm so excited for Pearl on that same tip. The other stuff that I saw this year that I thought was really great, I'm going to have to say was Hatching. Mm -hmm. Have have you seen Hatching yet? Yep. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what to expect from Hatching and that it it ended up being this sort of piss take on influencer culture (laughs) because those YouTube shows about my perfect little home and stuff, I've seen them. They're suspect. And, and I think that this movie did a great job of sort of like taking the, uh, taking the piss out of them. Gosh, what else this year? I'm a little behind on some stuff. I don't even know if it's a horror movie, but I thought Flux Gourmet was amazing. I haven't heard of it. Yeah. So Flux Gourmet is by Peter Strickland and it's a, it's about, so Peter Strickland's films all sort of have their own worlds. Like they don't really kind of exist in our world, but the, each one is their own specific world. And this one is about like this art collective and it's played as if it's just this thing, but like there's this institute where artists who do sonic and oral things with food <laughs> all compete for this sort of residency in this, in this art institute. And it's about this group that makes these sounds and does these performances with food and amplifiers and stuff. And then, and then after the show, all the audience go backstage and fuck the artists. <laughs> so it's this really sort of fascinating thing about like art and commerce because the artists are like constantly at war with their benefactor who's paying for the art and wants them to try this new instrument. They don't want to try the instrument and, and about fan culture in the way that these these orgies happen after the show and it's hilarious on top mm-hmm. i don't know where you can stream it but i'm pretty sure it's streaming right now somewhere but flux gourmet it's by the guy the horror fans would know from barbarian sound studio and in fabric okay so those are two films that he did and this is his new one and i think it's his weirdly even though you just heard everything i described it's his most accessible film okay. like once you get on board with like this scenario it's really just hilarious Oh, and the lead character sort of is a is a journalist profiling those artists who is desperately trying to not pass gas while he's interviewing them. That is a plot in the film. <laughs> okay. All right, cool. Well, that that's that's relatable. So yes, it's that. so relatable to me. Yes. <laughs> Gosh, you know, Did I you- thought men men was interesting, but kind of didn't really land for me. It fell off ultimately. at the end. It was it it was great. It was a great like invasion like home invasion movie for a lot of it and like stalking movie. And then it just felt went off the rails. I was like, no, it, it became a little too metaphorical. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and I don't mean to be, I don't want to be some literal minded dope, but like the, the, the idea that it's all played by him, but that doesn't register for her. That's only for us. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like nobody, nobody's noticing that it's all the same person. That's just for us to notice is really I don't know, a really fascinating choice, but where it all went with, at the end, I just felt that it landed in a different way or a way that was a little more accessible for people. We'd, we'd be looking at yeah. like a top tenor from the year. Yeah. What about but, Fresh? I'm, Did you see Fresh? I liked Fresh. 
Yeah. So did I. I thought it was, I thought it was a lot of fun and you know, it's the subgenre of what's not me, but someone had, has dubbed the good for her horror subgenre. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's, a, it's a nice example of, of that, I think. Yeah. And very, so, so a while back or last year, I published an article by a gentleman named Ben Williams, and he was writing about brutalist architecture in horror, which is about as niche as you could get. But it was about <laughs> how certain horror films create a vibe through where they're filmed, the settings and the certain kind of architecture. And I thought Fresh really did that very well. That house was like a character in the movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And not in a spooky gothic kind of way, super modern, super clean lines and stuff, but just really effective. Like that one a lot. And Nope, I enjoyed a lot as well, but I'm still kind of unpacking Nope because I think that there's like eight ideas happening in that movie. And I wonder if I hadn't talked to the filmmakers beforehand, if I had, if I would have caught them. I mean, other people certainly have caught them since then, different things about what this means and what that means. And I, in a way, I love that peel doesn't hold your hand and underline stuff in a way it's just there and if you pick it up great but he's not going to do the work for you but on the other hand that so many people walk out missing that stuff i i wonder if that means it's not an arousing success in terms of like landing with the audience but i will say a lot of people walked out saying i don't understand this this, and this and then they were still talking about it three days later yeah because there's a lot to talk about there's some movies you don't understand and then you just forget about them yeah and i think that nope is not that so so you mentioned one of these previously but what horror movies are you most looking forward to seeing in the rest of 2022 not that there's a whole lot left of the year but Mm. well it just came out but glorious is streaming now and i haven't watched it yet so i'm excited to watch that rebecca mckendry is you know part of the fangoria family so Mm -hmm. it's so exciting to see her getting that film done there's a film gosh i need to look at what's coming out but uh, the Hellraiser one I'm very excited about because David Bruckner has done two features now that I really, really responded to, which was The Ritual and which was The Night House. And he's doing really interesting things in the space and visually he's doing things that no one else is doing. So I'm curious how his visual style will manifest for Hellraiser in terms of like you know, I, I think we all know in the 80s and the original Hellraiser and stuff, it's a lot of just, we're going to do this with the light and we're going to have yeah. this happen and we're going to, and some darkness. And I know that David's imagination is going to be bigger than that. And I think his budget's going to be a little bigger than that. Yeah. So I'm curious to see how he manifests that world in his film. I'm really excited for that. I'm damn curious to see Halloween ends because everything I've heard about it sounds like it's not what anyone's expecting. I hope not. I hope it's good. You know, if it's if it's good, great. But the idea that it's a sequel where no one is expecting what's going to happen is also very exciting to me. I almost take I'll almost take surprise over quality sometimes <laughs> because there's so many movies and there's so few surprises. So yeah. maybe like you know, if we have to put that one, sacrifice it on the altar of surprise over quality. Maybe, maybe that's fine. What else is coming out this year? Good lord. Well, you mentioned Pearl before. Yes, um, Pearl's going to be here before we know it. You know what once everyone's talking about? And I'm going to see it. I'll have seen it by the time. And I know nothing, but it's called Barbarian. Yes, I'm really excited for that one too. And also there's a movie coming out called The Invitation, not the one that was on Netflix years ago. Right. This one's a yes. Dracula movie of some kind. Barbarian. Is that the one? No, I'm thinking of The Menu, I think, is what I'm thinking of. Barbarian. The, menu, the Menu's with Ray Fine. Yeah. 
Yeah. Bones and All is another one. With the, it's a cannibal movie but from the director of Suspir- the Suspiria remake with Timothy Chalamet. Oh, okay. Oh, but Bar- Barbarian is the one she gets to the the Airbnb and it's, it's like someone's an Airbnb there. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm yeah. excited That's for right. that. I won't stand Airbnbs. So this is just <laughs> going to be another notch in my, this is why I'm not staying in Airbnb. Belt. Nice. So Don't Worry Darling, which is kind of horror, is coming out. Mm, okay. uh, smile. Smiles in the new issue, and I think I'm going to see that at Fantastic Fest for good things. Run Sweetheart Run is another one that played. Here's where it gets blurry for me. Everything is coming out. I've seen half of them because I saw them in festival runs and oh. stuff. So in my mind, they're not like still coming out, but like Run Sweetheart Run, in which in my mind is a year old movie, is not out yet. Yeah. I mean, problems to have. <laughs> sure. VHS 99 sounds really interesting. Okay. Well, as we talked as, about, I haven't really watched any anthology horror, so I'm going to have to catch you're, up. You're not an anthology person, and I, I totally dig that sentiment, but the what I've heard about the individual stories in VHS 99 make me curious to check it out. Okay. All right. So I'm curious about that. <laughs> what are your favorite horror podcasts? Mm-hmm. This one. Obviously. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Uh, I struggle with podcasts okay. because I don't know why I have to be doing something else while I'm doing it. But like a lot of what I'm doing when people would be listening to podcasts, I need to be thinking, Yeah, you know, whether it's writing, whether it's editing, I mm-hmm. can't listen to a podcast while I'm doing something like that. And then when I'm like at the gym or on the treadmill, it's music. So okay. I have to carve out time for podcasts. And I, this is a pandemic thing because I would listen to podcasts when I would drive somewhere mm, and I'm yeah. hardly driving anywhere now. Yeah. So that's part of the problem. But I'm trying to look at my little library of horror podcasts here. Well, you know, I got to shout out my Fango podcast. My, my boys at the King Cast, Scott and Eric, always a good time there. Again, Rebecca, who did Glorious, she hosts, she and Elle Kane host Colors of the Dark, which yep. is our other podcast. Um, Garris's Postmortem. Yep. Which I've been on, so I'm a little biased. But <laughs> there's some other interesting ones happening out there. I think Horror Queers is a lot of fun. Yeah. Ladies and Ligaments is fun. I love a good half hour podcast. No offense to this conversation, which yeah. I'm enjoying very much. <laughs> but when, when a podcast and it comes up on my thing and it's 26 minutes, I'm like, yeah, let's listen to that. Yeah. 10 minutes. I'm like, why did you bother? <laughs> but, and a podcast that I miss is Dead for Filth, which is Michael Harati's podcast back in oh, the day. Oh, I'm not familiar with that one. It's another one with a sort of a queer angle to it. But Harati has another one that I also like with Peaches Christ called Midnight Mass. Oh. And each one, they sort of unpack a, a horror classic and have a guest on who like feel strongly about that. And I got to be on that one and talk about Phantom of the Paradise, which is, nah. which you, I've been trying to get you to watch since I met you five days ago. So <laughs> one week, well, yeah, six days ago, you met me six days ago, I think. There it is. Something like that. Okay. Are there any horror movies that you love that people generally don't like, or do you hold any unpopular horror movie opinions? Yes. I dislike Scream 2 and get yelled at on the internet regularly for it. I think I understand why people like it, but I also think that the movie's ending was hastily reshot when it was leaked on the internet and that the ending does not gel at all with the film that came before it. And it's okay. got the single worst film class scene I've ever seen committed to cinema. Uh, <laughs> it's the hokiest, like most scripted film students arguing with each other scene I've ever seen. That's an unpopular opinion. I understand. And uh, I own that. But uh, no, going back to Texas Chainsaw, Texas Chainsaw 4 is a movie that I have long argued is not taken seriously enough because I think it, it's 
it's anthropologically interesting as a sequel made by the guy who wrote the original and didn't get to make any money off the original. So showed up to direct the new one twice as old as he was in the, at the original and the, the weird vibe and energy of that film is reflects where he was at that time as an angry middle-aged man, <laughs> as opposed to a young idealistic hippie, right? It's as mean as any, anything in the original film. And it's funny, like a scream movie to me. And I think that scream fans would love that one because the kids are such dicks. They're just <laughs> such terrible people. And, and because they're written from by a middle-aged man who thinks kids are horrible. And it's my defensing, uh, my defense of this movie and my banging the drum led to me moderating the Blu-ray commentary with the filmmaker. Like I got flown to Austin and I oh, sat that's there. that's so with, cool. <laughs> with, I sat with him and I sat there with one of the actors from the film and we just talked about the movie <laughs> while we were watching it. It's a very surreal moment. And if you watch it, it's, I don't know if you know, aware, if anybody's listening, this isn't aware. It's the one with Matthew McConaughey and Renee Zellweger. In it. So that same year they did Days and Confused together. <laughs> and then they did this and it's there's something about the juxtaposition of a very cheap horror movie filled with people with two of the biggest stars of that decade yeah. i mean within three years of this thing those two were starring in rom-coms and stuff I think. <laughs> it so it's very very odd to see them in this low budget slasher movie and to see them going for it like there's no no one can convince me that that performance that matthew mcconaughey does in that movie is any worse than the one he got an oscar for like he goes for it the whole movie. And it's, it's got, a, like I said, an anthropological value just for that alone, just to see him becoming Matthew McConaughey on screen. He literally says, all right, all right, all right, in it. Like, it's, it's uh, legit. Like, you got to watch wow. it. It's crazy. It's got a bananas ending that makes no sense, but I love every time I see it. And she's the, one of the best runners in slasher movies I've ever seen. When you watch her run in this movie, it's like a gazelle. Hmm. It, you know there's the, the old trope that like final girls can't run they're tripping yeah. and falling she is like a olympic track star in this movie <laughs> she's unbelievable awesome okay well you've convinced me to track down texas chainsaw massacre four so yes under the title texas chainsaw massacre the next generation of course next generation looking for it. okay mm-hmm. but and that's kind of like watching jennifer aniston in like leprechaun or something wasn't that right before? That's a terrible movie. Similar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I think I would, I'm claiming here now that Chainsaw 4 is better than Leprechaun. I mean, from everything you've said, it sounds like it. So, yeah. yeah. If you could remake one horror movie, which one would it be? Ooh. If I say it, somebody's going to take my idea. And you know, I'm like adjacent to the industry. It could happen for me still. I could still yeah. make the movie. Maybe I shouldn't tell you. I think it's probably going to get sort of like stepped on anyway. But to me, Fade to Black is ripe for remaking because it's about a horror fan who is obsessed with his faves. And I hmm. think that we are in an age where we talk about toxic fan. So God did get stepped on a little bit of the Scream remake. As a matter of yeah. fact, not remake, Scream 5. Sorry. <laughs> I'm going to call it Scream 5. But I had a treatment for a while about the idea of Fade to Black as like a comment on toxic fandom. And I think it's, there's still something there. If Erwin Yablon still owns the rights, you should call me up and we should figure it out. Awesome. Well, he, he definitely listens or she they I definitely hope, listen, he, so. he listens. Yeah. And Ty West also definitely listens. So I, uh, I will tell him to skip this episode so he doesn't have to 
hear you talk. Yeah. Listen, he should celebrate the fact that I'm he's won me over and I'm super excited <laughs> for Pearl. And and I think that there's now now with Pearl being set in 1918 and and uh, X being set in what, 76, 78, so, 79? something like that. Yeah. 70s. There's all these decades in between that you can make Pearl movies now. You can make one in the 30s. You can make one in the 50s. I hope he does. That At would, least a that, trilogy. That would be. Yeah, that would be interesting. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. So my last question is, if you had to spend quarantine with one horror villain, who would it be? One horror villain, who would it be? Is it presumptuous to say I think I could survive Pearl? Because you know what Pearl's all about, and you know yeah. you know what she needs <laughs> to keep her happy. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's smart. So I think I could, you know, keep Pearl at bay. Nice. I'm, I'm picking Pearl. Awesome. That's one that no one's picked so far. So good for you. That's that's very wise. She's probably not going to try to murder you either. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for being here and for taking the time. This ran a little long, but this was fun. Do you want to tell everyone where they can find you on the internet? I do not need to be found on the internet, but I would love for people to go to <laughs> fangory.com and, and check out our website. And, and if they're moved to subscribe, that would be amazing. You could subscribe from that site. You could also buy single issues from that site if you're not ready to pull the trigger on a year. And, uh, you know, one th- it's just Every time I'm out in the new, the real world, I find somebody who doesn't know we're back yet. I think we saturated social media and the Twitter sphere and all that, but like, I still need to get the word out that Fango's back, but we've been back for four and a half years now. And I would love for people to check out what we're about now. Awesome. Well, I will leave a link to Fangoria in the show notes in case anybody doesn't know that it's back yet. So thank you so much. Have a good, have a good weekend and I'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care. That's it for this week's episode of Who's There. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Phil Nobile Jr. And thanks again to Phil for coming on. If you haven't subscribed to Fangoria yet, what are you waiting for? You can follow us on Twitter at Who's There Pod. We're on Instagram at Who's There Podcast. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, horror movie recommendations, or you'd like to be a guest, shoot us an email at Who's There PC at gmail.com. Until next time, stay scary and get vaccinated.